Hi, welcome to the Wine Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Craig. The Wine Beat is an exploration of the world's great wine regions. We go on location, but sometimes well off the beaten track to bring you this content. Now, there are two reasons to get very charged up about today's episode. The first of these is that this is the launch of a new sub-series of podcasts, a sub-series of the, you know, uh, Wine Beat podcast that I call Cocktails with Winemakers. You're going to find out why it's called Cocktails with Winemakers in a second when we get started with my friend Felix Egerer. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But let's go to the second reason that I'm charged up about this episode, and that is that we are debuting new music for the podcast created by my friend James Wilson for us. It's the soulful, brilliant, the bluesy Jimmy Wilson. I hope you love the music. I sure do. It's fantastic. This is the Wine Beat, Cocktails with Winemakers. Here we go. with winemakers. This is a new series of podcasts that we're doing with winemakers and viticulturalists and people in the wine industry and we're calling it Cocktails with Winemakers because it's kind of got a catchy aspect to it. So uh, what we're going to do with this series of podcasts is we're going to explore the world of wine from a winemaker or a viticulturalist or a wine professional's perspective. We're going to look at winemaking not in a truly technical sense. This is this is like if you had a chance to sit down with somebody you really respected in the wine industry and have a conversation about wine and pin them down in front of a fireplace for an hour and, and hear what they say about making wine. That's what this episode or this series of episodes is about. So Cocktails with Winemakers is, um, is about hearing about winemaking, but not in a technical sense. So I'm here today with Felix Egerer from Tantalus Estates in Kelowna, Canada. And Felix is a talented guy. He's been working in winemaking for a number of years. He's going to tell you about that. Um, he's got a viticultural background. He's got a winemaking background. And um, Felix, uh, maybe the best thing is just to have you tell us about yourself. Right, I can do that. Um, hi, my name is Felix. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast, Craig. This is going to be fun. I like all aspects of it winemaking and cocktails so um this should be good um as you mentioned yeah i work for tantalus vineyards in Kelowna, bc in the okanagan um as their vineyard manager um i am originally from germany born and raised there spent most of my life in germany might not be able to tell no your accent is <laughs> where did it go um it never existed my mom is from the u.s so All that's right. quite convenient that it was uh, brought up That's with. true. It's more American than, than yeah. German. Yeah. yeah. Um, I spent a couple of years at, in college at UC Davis in California. So that uh, that is the, the accent that you can hear there. Um, so yeah, as I said, born and raised in Germany and uh, discovered wine after high school, trying to figure out what to do. Um, truth be told, did not get into pre-med so I had to figure out something else, and uh, wine is a pretty big thing in Germany. So I came across the winemaking school in Germany, Geisenheim, which is one of the best schools in the world, 
and figured I'd give it a shot. Went and worked at a winery for six months to see whether or not I'd like it. In Germany? In Germany, yeah, in the Pfalz, in a small family-run winery, just about, I don't know, like 30 acres of grapes, not a lot. And after two days, uh, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And here I am. After two days? Two days, yeah. It took me two days of, of working where I just figured out, yeah, it's not at all what I expected, but it's great. And here I am, nine years, ten years later, um, sitting in a living room, looking out at the snow in Canada in March. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're uh, we're at the tail end of the cold spell that North America has had all through February, and we're yeah. hoping this is the break, right? We're hoping that this snow signals the end of this terrible cold spell we've had. Hopefully, hopefully, it'd be nice to to see some green and not so much white in the in the coming weeks. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. It's you, uh, working the vineyard and doing the pruning that typically happens in the winter months is not practical when it's so cold. So we've had not ridiculously cold weather, but we've had minus 10, minus 15 weather. And, and we're at that verge you were telling me about how uh, pruning the vines is is um, is potentially detrimental or damaging to the vines and to the buds because of, because of the cold. Yeah. Um, it's just you're making cuts and exposing tissue, green tissue, growing tissue, um, as you make those cuts when you're pruning. And... As you cut with your shears, you impact the wood. And so if it's too cold, then the wood that's filled with sap still um, can just crack. And so we at Tanlis, we stop pruning at around minus 10 degrees because it's not good for the plants. And it's also really not a lot of fun to be out there eight hours a day in in sub minus 10 or even in minus 10, minus 5 and, uh, and work away while not moving all that much. Yeah, I've had a bit of that experience myself. Yeah. Um, but we're not talking about viticulture today. We're going to talk more about uh, winemaking. And uh, we're going to come back to viticulture, and I, and I hope you're going to help me with that because I hope we can do some podcast interviews together on, on viticulture. But let's talk about winemaking. Let's talk about, and, and again, this, the idea of the podcast is cocktails with winemakers. We're having margaritas. Delicious. Are they good? Mm-hmm. I made them myself. Fantastic, <laughs> and uh, so we're having margaritas, and we're gonna, and we've we've kind of mapped out at least the first few episodes about what we're gonna talk about. So we're we're gonna start. It's almost like chronological, right, in terms of of, of winemaking. We're gonna talk about the harvest decision. That's what this episode is about, about how to know when to harvest the grapes and what what the grape constituents should be when you you know when how does a winemaker know when he's got that optimum moment to pick the grapes. So, um, you know, this is not nitty-gritty viticulture, and uh, it's not technical. We're just going to talk about how do you decide when to pick the grapes. How do we decide, and who gets to decide? Um, it's not as easy as it seems. It's just, as you said, it's this this window that you're trying to hit that where the, the grape is just perfect for what you want it to be. So this, this whole process starts fairly early on in the season when uh, the grapevine actually flowers. Um, happens here in, in the Okanagan and Kelowna 
is in June and it can last for almost um, from a week if it's fast and hot to it could be drawn out, which makes me as a viticulturist nervous because it's very the vine is very vulnerable at that state. And um, once the vines have flowered and uh, the little flowers are pollinated, vines are dioecious, so they're both male and female. They don't need any help from bees or anything. Um, they pollinate themselves. And um, once they're pollinated, um, we refer to it as set. They set their grapes, they set their fruit, and you can actually see it on the vines. It's little tiny little green berries. Um, and So you go from having a what looks like a very, very tiny bunch, but it has flowers. Yeah. Very tiny, tiny flowers. Very, very tiny flowers with the sweetest smell. You wouldn't think so because they don't have actual colorful petals or anything, but there's a very distinct sweet smell that you can get off it when you actually stick your nose in them, which we do when we're out working. So they're flowers, but they're dioecious. Yeah. So they don't need bugs, bees. Nope, they don't need bugs or bees. But they still um, smell good. They still smell good, yeah. A little bit of wind always helps just to shake the, the pollen around and then to um, get rid of the caps that are on the flowers before they, they pop open. Um, and then we're off to the races. And those little berries over the course of a few months will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and then eventually change color and get sweet. And then we have to figure out when to pick them. So let's let's talk about the getting sweet part, right? I mean, that's what is so important. I mean, I know from my knowledge that uh, evolutionary-wise, uh, evolution-wise, the grapes are sweet because uh, birds eat them, bears eat them, different things eat them, and then scatter them around, and that's why the berries are sweet. But it's also the magic of grapes. They have this sugar content this sugar load um so it's all about the sugar i i always think in the grape so let's talk about the sugar how what is so important about the sugar in the in the grape and is it the only important thing what else is important in the grape well the sugar i mean without sugar there's no alcohol in wine which as sad as it might sound is one of the big reasons we drink wine um sugar is fermented by yeast eventually and turned into alcohol and carbon dioxide and this sugar develops over time in the season it doesn't really happen early on because the plant is still focused on growing itself and increasing the berry size just dividing cells making the berries bigger and then at a certain point in time um, in summer the berries will start to soften and that's when the sugar starts accumulating in the berries. So throughout the season, the vine in its leaves produces, technical term is photosynthate. It's essentially sugar um, in the leaves. And while the vine is still growing, this sugar is sent to all parts of the vine to, as a carbohydrate to fuel um, growth. And then once it switches to the the ripening process, um, it's at a certain point in time where red varieties start developing color. Um, white varieties go from green 
to kind of like a yellowy and then eventually golden hue, very soften, and they get really, really plump and then sweet fairly quickly, actually. Um, this process or this point in time is called veraison. It's a French term and because it sounds so great, we've adopted it in English too. Um, and that's where... Do the Germans have their own expression for, for this, or do they use Verizon as well? No, they don't use <laughs> they Verizon. Use, I think they, they use ripening something. <laughs> Funny thing is I've actually never worked a harvest in Germany. Okay. Um, so when I, when I left the winery at that point, it was July, so the grapes weren't even close to being ripe yet. But in Canada and the U.S., we use Verizon. And that's that moment when the grapes start to... When they start turning... Into and, grapes. They yeah, get into plump, grapes. They... Into sweet grapes, into into grapes that we can use for winemaking. And as you mentioned before, it's not just the sugar. The sugar is a big or an important factor in it, but grapes also contain, contain all sorts of other molecules, um, a few different acids, mainly tartaric acid and malic acid, a little bit of citric acid and other acids, and then also um, flavor compounds, and in uh, in red varieties or some pink varieties like Pinot Gris, there uh, there will be some tannin in there. There's tannin in white grapes too, but not as much. And um, anthocyanins are what give grapes the really red color. Right. And they develop. They start developing at Braison too. Okay, so this is the heart of it, right? We've got a grape. It's doing its thing. They've got a grapevine. It's doing its thing. Um, it's creating carbohydrates, sugar, ultimately, that is going into the grape. It's making fruit, which is what its whole life is all about, is making fruit. And so that sugar it makes it sweet, and that's the substrate for making alcohol. That's so important for fermentation, ultimately. But it's also doing these other things. It's, it's, it's loaded up with acid. You, you said tartaric and malic acid. And we're also loading up with, uh, what's the term, uh, phenolics, anthocyanins, tannins, that bitter, those bitter compounds. Yeah. And there's a balance here, isn't there? So how do we know? I mean, okay, I'm, I'm interrupting you. Tell me, how do we know when the, right, the berry's at that right moment with all of those things? How do we know? Um... It depends really it's i mean it's a personal decision right um often in in smaller to medium wine wineries it's the winemaker who makes the picking decision in large wineries it can be just numbers chemical numbers um if you pick hundreds of acres then you don't have time to go out and taste everything or it's too expensive to go out and taste everything um some wines especially in france it's the government that tells you when you can pick they give you a window they give you five days that you can pick champagne burgundy a lot of the aocs have those kinds of that's um, really cool rules. right i mean in some places it's actually reg regulated yeah it is it's not the winemaker saying mm, i think this is the moment no it's the government saying you have five days in which you can pick your grand cru champagne vineyards in this village um if you can't pick it in those days, then it can't be called Grand Cru. And they're making the decision based on the weather forecast and the disease pressures that might be out there. I think they have all sorts of of numbers and and other information that they go off of. 
Um, I think traditionally it's still very sugar focused. Um, but yeah, it's kind of crazy. I think coming from or working in a, in a North American environment where it's up to us when we pick and what we pick and to see those, those somewhat ancient rules in, in other parts of the world. But it's also kind of cool because it's tradition. Still, they've been doing it like that for hundreds of years yeah, for a they, reason. And it seems to work out fine. I they, mean, they do make good wines. Burgundies and champagnes are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but if you're the winemaker, I mean, you much prefer to look at your own weather forecast and your own, you know, row by row. Have I got a disease problem here? Have I got some mold? Am I worried that um, I need to... Uh, you know, get these grapes off before the mold gets worse, or, or do I need to let them ripen more? Do I? What do I want to achieve with these wines? Yeah, um, I mean, in an ideal world, everything, all the fruit is healthy. It's beautiful sunshine out, but not too hot during harvest, and grapes are just ripening slowly and consistently. And you can go out, taste some berries, get some numbers, and then make your decisions even a few days out because you know that it's not going to change too much or you know that five more days from your experience can it takes five more days and then the grapes will be at a point that you want to pick them um everyone has their personal style wineries have their style um varieties are picked at different levels Big reds are usually picked a little higher in sugar. Lighter reds like Pinot or Gamay are picked lower in sugar. Whites are picked lower in sugar. Sparkling will be even lower in sugar because in sparkling you add more sugar for the secondary fermentation. Um, and you really want that acid in sparkling that is one of the key components of sparkling wine. It's just racing acidity. So... Yeah, there's so many factors that decide when you're going to pick um, mold and the weather being factors or disease and the weather being factors that are not so nice to think about. But sometimes you can fight all season long and you still end up with a little bit of disease in the vineyard and you might have to pull grapes a little sooner than you'd like just to save the crop because you do have to end up with, with some wine to sell at the end of the year. I, I think for me, the sugar part is easier to understand, right? I mean, that's really kind of linear or basic, right? Yeah. Sugar increases in the grape. Try to capture that moment when the sugar is at its optimal level for the alcohol level that it's going to be ultimately produced, right? You can, it's, it's almost a linear relationship. Sugar yeah, there's, to there's, uh, there's equations that you can plug in the sugar level and... Um, you know the conversion factor usually that yeast will give you and then you can almost pinpoint the alcohol level to a few decimal points that you'll end up with um, if you pick, pick purely based on sugar. So um, that's the simple end of the spectrum. And then you got this really weird kind of phenolics end of the spectrum, which is complex because there's bitterness and there's um, age worthiness and there's all sorts of stuff happening with phenolics. And then maybe I, that's the way I think about it is acidity somewhere in the middle because we don't often think about acidity when we're, think, when we're drinking wine, but we all, you know, notice that. It's that brightness. It's that tingly um, 
um, tightness in the wine. How does a winemaker analyze? I mean, sugar is easier to analyze, right? You can you can measure it, but how do you analyze acids? Acids. So acids um, are at the highest right before or right at veraison. That's after that, no more acid is produced, um, and acid levels decline in the grape. So. So sugar's increasing. Sugar's increase over time. Um, flavors, phenolics increase over time. Um, certain phenolics, like colors, color compounds increase, whereas um, tannins, they're, the net level is the same. They're just diluted as more and more sugar and liquid goes into the berry. And in, with acids, it's the same. Pretty much tartaric acid is... A stable total number per berry but it just gets diluted as the berry swells over time um, you won't ever actually lose tartaric acid because it's stable as an acid oh, so that's cool right so the amount of tartaric acid in the berry is fixed from and varies on verizon yeah you won't ever the physically... berry gets bigger so the yeah. percentage of tartaric acid uh, the amount of tartaric acid decreases as a per, on a percentage basis. Yeah. Just as the berry gets bigger. Yeah. But the overall amount of tartaric acid in the in the berry in each grape remains the same. It does. Um, there's no enzyme in the grape that metabolizes tartaric. There's actually, I don't know of any enzyme that metabolizes tartaric acid. Um, malic acid, on the other hand, which is the second major acid in grapes. Um, is readily metabolized um, by enzymes in the grape. So you'll actually lose, net lose malic acid over time, not just on a percentage basis because of the concentration, but also, yeah, on a net basis, you will lose malic acid over time. And um, malic acid is a pretty harsh acid. So over time, your fruit will just, the acidity will soften, which is... It's hard to think about because acidity or acid is so tart. Well, for lack of a better word, it's it's tart. It's a tart. We know the characteristic, flavor. right? Yeah. Yeah, but if you actually taste different acids side by side, you'll notice a difference in how they feel on the tongue, what the subtle flavor differences are, and um, that's one big component or factor that that winemakers will pay attention to um, when making their picking decisions. Um, overall, not to lose too much acidity. As your grapes get sweeter and sweeter, they swell more and more. And so your percentage of acid in the juice goes down and you still want that balance. Um, but in seasons like 2018, last year in the Okanagan, we didn't really have a lack of acidity. It was more the other way. We almost had too much acidity and we had to wait for the acidity to drop out a little bit and the acids in the wines that went to, to bottle are quite astounding, but beautifully balanced. Um, and so we had that sugars and then phenolics is another big component. Um, a guy I worked with in California, he used to make his picking decisions based on bitterness. So he would crunch up the grape and the, the most bitter um, tannins are usually in the seeds. 
with Seed Tannen are really, really harsh. And he started to think about picking when he couldn't taste the bitterness over the sweetness anymore. So he would crunch up a grape and bitterness and or sugar counteracts bitterness. So when he couldn't taste that anymore, that's when he started looking at numbers and um, picked pretty soon after that. So for him, it wasn't too much about the flavor that he tasted in the grape, um, but it was more... The sugar phenolics balance. Yeah, sugar phenolics. Bitterness versus sweetness. Yeah. This is deep stuff, right? I mean, we could just go on and on. I could spend two hours just talking about picking decisions. Yeah, it, it, it is crazy in terms of the... Um, it's the balances, these, these incredible balances and why grapes make such great wine because they have these specific acids. I know that, you know, grapes are the only fruit that have tartaric acid in any significant concentration and that's what makes them quite special in terms of making wine, making, uh, yeah, making wine. Um, but you've got the sugars, the phenolics, the acids, and a bunch of other things. But those are maybe the three most important components. Um, that make that balance. So if you know you're what I think people probably think the winemaker goes out into the vineyard, and you kind of described it just now with the guy in California, right? Um, he picks some grapes, he crunches them up. Does he know it's going to make good wine? Do you know that as a winemaker? If you eat a grape, oh, this is this is the this is the one. This is the moment. This is going to make great wine. It's. I'm going to say yes. I mean, it's always a, a personal thing. The more experience you have, the longer you've been working in the industry the more confidence you have in your decisions, the more likely you're going to make a right decision. Um, at the end of the day, the decision has to fit your style, what you're trying to achieve. And once you're in a head winemaker position, you usually have enough experience to, to know when it's right. Mm. To, to be able to walk out and taste some berries and then run some numbers in the lab and then nail your picking decision. Um, ultimately, will you know how it would have tasted if you'd picked a week later or two days later? You won't. But at that point, you, um, you make that decision and then you're going to have to deal with it throughout fermentation and um, aging and then bottling and well, once the finished wine is, is released and people taste it. And you're a farmer, right? I mean, yeah, it could rain the day after you pick or you might be making your picking decision and suddenly it rains. Yeah. Or you have forest fires and there's smoke or um, there's mold and mildew and you just have to do what you can do. Yeah. Mother nature is one of, one of the biggest factors. We can, we can plan and do whatever we do and if at the late at the last moment there's a, a rainstorm that we didn't read about on forecasts or nobody saw coming then you're probably going to wait a few days for that water to to soak into the ground and kind of go in and out of the grapes and then if you can wait that long and then change your decisions working here at Tantalus we're small enough that we can pretty much the day before we pick a certain block, that's when we make the decision. We, um, we're very fortunate in that regard that we can adjust our decisions to, to the situation. Some regions have better 
predictability in terms of their autumn weather than others, right? I oh, mean, absolutely. Thanks for the conversation. Uh, so um, picking decisions is all about being a good farmer. Yeah, and all about confidence. It's ultimately, it's a call you have to make and it's a call you've been trained to make and there's no right or wrong way. Everyone has their own way of making those decisions. I know people who... Is it an art or a science? It's winemaking is a blend of the two. It's not just one or the other. You can live it like one or the other. There's artist winemakers out there. There's scientist winemakers out there. And then there's the people who, who blend the two very skillfully. And those are the people that I like to listen to and who I think make the best wines. Cause it's just, yeah, it's art, science, and a little bit of magic. It, there's something about it that's just fascinating. And that's why we, we all do it. And you can tell when you're in the industry and you hang out with those kind of people, there's when harvest time comes up, there's a, there's a buzz that goes around and everyone is a little on edge cause it's about to get real. And then six weeks go by and a flash and then you sit down, have a couple of beers and do it all over again. Thanks for joining us today on the wine beat podcast. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the wine beat, you might have noticed this sort of long hiatus, this delay since we've been uploading material. And I apologize for that, but we've been revising and relaunching the website. And I'm a bit of a technical dummy, so it's taken me a while to get my head around WordPress, which is where we're now residing. It's a much better format, blah, 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 blah. But look, there's more content. It's a better looking website. So apologies for the long delay. In fact, you'll notice it because, you know, in this podcast, Felix and I talk about how it's March and it's snowing. Well, now it's June and it's summer. So there has been a delay, but never, never fear. There are more podcasts uh, coming. More episodes of Cocktails with Winemakers are coming very, very soon. But the next episode you're going to hear on the Wine Beat is something from the wider wine world. It's an interview that was recorded in English sparkling country. So in the South Downs in Sussex, the arguably the best sparkling wine in England is made, and arguably the best sparkling wine in the world is made. Now, that's fairly contentious thing to say, but we'll get into that in the, uh, in the podcast. So I had the opportunity to go down to Tinwood Estate, um, and I interviewed Art Tucker, the owner of the estate, and we have a privileged introduction into the growing and making of sparkling wine in England, why this is such fantastic terroir for sparkling wine, and why English sparkling is starting to seriously reorder the sparkling wine world. So that's next up on the Wine Beat podcast. Come visit us on the website, www.thewinebeat.com. You'll be able to see the show notes for this episode, so you'll be able to see some pictures of Tantalus Vineyards in Kelowna, where Felix works. You'll be able to see Felix. Uh, You'll be able to see Felix's favorite tractor. Uh, Lots of great stuff on the Wine Beat website. And uh, stay tuned for that episode with Art Tucker from Tinwood Estate, English Sparkling Country, because that's coming up probably within the week. Uh, talk to you soon on the wine beat and here we go we're going to end off with the full version of the song that jim wilson did for the wine beat here's the fabulous jimmy wilson you can talk about your whiskey you can talk about your beer you're looking for the kind of talk you ain't gonna find it here oh
the old world to the new, you'll find a different point of view about wine. 